This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to season three of the Read, Write, and Create podcast. Happy 2024. Happy Black History Month. I'm just happy to be back here on the mic, bringing you more pep talks and inspiring interviews with literary legends. And speaking of literary legends, today on episode 23 of the podcast, I am honored to have as my guest, New York Times bestselling author, Tia Williams. Tia is the author of both YA titles and adult fiction. She wrote the best-selling debut novel, The Accidental Diva, and penned two young adult novels right after, It Chicks and Sixteen Candles. Her award-winning novel, The Perfect Find, is currently a Netflix movie starring Gabrielle Union, which many of you have probably seen. Her next novel, Seven Days in June, was a New York Times bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And now her new novel, A Love Song for Ricky Wilde, is about to hit store shelves on February 6, 2024. In addition to being a prolific writer of contemporary fiction, Tia had a 15-year career as a beauty editor for magazines like Elle, Glamour, Lucky, Teen People, and Essence. And then she went on to have a second career as executive editorial director at the Estee Lauder Companies. Currently, Tia lives in Brooklyn with her daughter and husband. During our conversation, Tia and I talk about how everything that glitters is definitely not gold in the publishing industry, even when you experience as much success as Tia has had in her writing career. When we sit down and talk, Tia really opens up honestly about the obstacles she faced getting her second adult novel published, even after the success of her former titles. She tells us what race had to do with it, and most importantly, how and why she never gave up on her writing dreams. We also talk about the fun and not-so-fun parts about writing romance, how to write a good sex scene, and why BIPOC writers should not feel obligated to center trauma in their stories. You guys, this is truly a juicy, delicious conversation about race, romance, and keeping it real. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Tia Williams. Hi, I'm so excited to be here and chat writerly things with you. <laughs> Wonderful. I am so happy you're here as well. Um, by the time this episode comes out on February 5th, it will be the eve of the debut of your latest book, A Love Song for Ricky Wilde. And word on these literary streets is that this is your best book yet. It's been getting great reviews. I know that it got a starred review in Booklist, Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. Publishers Weekly is calling Ricky Wilde, and I quote, 
a gorgeous, transportive love letter to the Harlem Renaissance. I know it's also been on a bunch of most anticipated uh, reads for 2024. So before we get into everything else, how are you feeling about Ricky Wilde coming into the world? It's kind of surreal because when the idea came to me, it was so different than anything I'd ever done that I was nervous to tell my agent. I was like, this this sounds wild for me to be writing. I mean, yes, it's still like a big, passionate, very steamy love story, but it has magical realism elements. And that's something that I've never done before. And I didn't think that my agent or my editor would buy that coming from me. I mean, there's authors that only do that, you know? And so the idea that it is, you know, Ricky Wilde is now a real book. It is about to launch people are gonna read it it's it's wild it's 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 really wild it's exciting it's it's a very it's a lovely full circle moment um because again by the time this comes out the book won't even officially still be out what's your elevator pitch for the book when i read it i didn't really know exactly what i was getting into so it was such a delightful surprise so i don't want to give away you know, what's really happening, but how do you describe the book for people who haven't read it yet? So it is about a free-spirited florist who moves to Harlem to sort of bring her dream of owning her own flower shop to fruition. And when she's there, she runs into a very mysterious, very handsome musician in a garden. And they become immediately smitten and discover that their lives are interconnected in some very exciting, enigmatic ways. Um, yeah, and there is some Harlem Renaissance flashbacks. There's voodoo. There's leap year magic. There is uh, platonic love. It's kind of a little bit of everything. But at its center is a really beautiful love story. Yeah. Again, we're not going to discuss the ins and outs of the book because we don't want to give any spoilers. And it is like every bit of it is kind of new and different and exciting. But one of the things that I just appreciate so much is that you you brought in all these different elements. Like you said, it's not just a love story. You have some historical elements in there. You have some magical elements in there. And I just applaud you because I think it just shows what a just like what a creative writer you are. It seems kind of basic, but really when we talk about creative writing and taking genres that maybe people don't think of romance as having all these different possible elements and angles that you can bring into. And I just, you know, again, big round of applause for bringing such a diversity to this genre, if you will. So we are going to come back to Ricky Wilde at the end of the interview, but I want to take a step back because when I read your bio in the beginning of the show, people will hear New York Times bestseller. They'll hear the titles of your other successful books. They'll hear that your book got turned into a Netflix film starring Gabrielle Union. And they may think, wow, this woman has all success, all the positives. She's just led a charmed literary life. But I know that you have had ups and downs and you've had a very long career. And I wanted to take it back to the point where you were trying to get your book, A Perfect Find, sold and you were not able to find a publisher who wanted to publish it. Can you take us back, Tia, to what was going on in your life 
You had published, I believe it was three or four books before that. You were working in editorial at some of the top magazines in New York City. Take us to what happened at that point in your writing career where somebody with your background couldn't get a book deal and what happened? It's actually pretty painful to even talk about. It's one of the most traumatic experiences I've been through, truly, especially considering, you know, I wasn't a newcomer. I wasn't someone they would be taking a chance on, they meaning, you know, traditional publishers. And literally every publisher you have ever heard of said no to the perfect fine which was really heartbreaking. And, you know, as a writer, you know, when your work sucks, you know, when it's like mid and you know, when it's really good. And I knew that the perfect fine was really good. So it was just really crushing. And the um, rejections were glowing rejections, which is also extremely frustrating. Love the writing, love Jenna, love this, love that. You know, the romance is so sexy and delicious, but it may be hard for audiences to believe that a fashion editor at a white magazine would be black. Can we change the industry? Never mind the fact that I based the character on myself. So I'm a living, breathing example of the fact that it does exist. And even if it had never existed, why can't it exist in fiction? Why is it such a stretch to imagine Black people in places that your limited mind has never seen? So it, it, yeah, it was really, really hard for me. It would be different. Rejections suck, but it would be different if it was like, this is way off. Like the tone is wrong or, you know, the ending fell flat. And it was none of that. It was like, I did my job. Yes, it was really, really hard. I finally got thanks to my brilliant agent, Sharice Fisher, a very small independent publisher. I mean, it was pretty much like self-publishing, which people that are good at it, hats off. Unfortunately, I'm not as super business-minded. Like you really have to be sort of wear all hats to do that. And I, you know, I'm not a sales and marketing kind of girl, distribution, I'm confused. I'm, uh, numbers are not, you know, I was told there would be no math. Like I, is, I can't, you know, so it was really, really hard for me. A million times I said I was never going to write again, but here we are. So that's the part that I really want to get into, because a lot of times what we talk about writing, like a lot of people can write, a lot of people have great stories, and you're like, why are there not more successful authors? And often it's that mindset or that stubbornness that just says, you know what, I am going to throw myself in front of this truck one more time because I just, you know, I'm a masochist or something. But like really and truly, Tia, can you talk about like... First of all, what happened once you got the small publisher to publish it? What was the reception? I mean, we kind of know because it's on Netflix now, but like, tell us what the actual process was like when you were like, I'm going to publish it with this small indie publisher. What was going through your mind? Was it like, I'm just going to get it out no matter what? And then tell us what happened next. It was very, I just need to get this out no matter what. And then it was tough. You know, it wasn't in bookstores. It was order through Amazon and they print it. I'm not even using the right terminology. I'm sorry. No, no. Um, I mean, it's like, yeah, print on demand or something. Like print that. on demand. Yes. Print on demand. So it was 
pretty limited quantities. I wasn't, you know, a self-published author. They're marketing geniuses. Like they hit the road selling their stuff. You know, I, I wasn't very good at that. And also I was so hurt and sort of shattered by the whole experience. I was like, okay, well, I got it out in the world. That's the best I can do. But then everyone who read it loved it. So that was really, really great. And it was a small number, but an enthusiastic number, which really made it worth it. It made it worth it. And then I saw someone DM me and they were like, we're, I'm not on Snapchat because it's so, who can, I, it's so confusing. But someone DM me and was like, oh, we just saw Gabrielle Union is on vacation reading your book. And that honestly changed everything. And from there, you know, she reached out to me and, and fast forward and it's a movie. <laughs> and that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what you're saying is get Gabrielle Union to read your book. Um, no, but yeah, no, you never know who's reading your work. So what was your takeaway from that then? I mean, I know I don't want to like dwell on that, but this is the kind of back stage information that I want my writers to understand that everything isn't always going like easy. Once you have your break, once you get one book sold and it's just easy breezy, everything you do is going to get published. No. What was your takeaway from that experience? Besides Gabrielle Union is your best marketing option. (laughs) Right, right, right. It's just the truth of publishing is that it is fickle the elements are at play are sometimes so beyond anything that has to do with you. Maybe the publisher you're pitching already has two black female voices and they feel like that's enough for their 2027 lineup. You know what I mean? Maybe your sci-fi romance is really good, but they have a Taiwanese American author also doing a sci-fi romance and they can't have two people of color publishing in the same genre. You know, it's a really, really fickle industry. And these days it's very trend driven. You know, unfortunately in 2020, there were all these promises made about diversity and equality in publishing and and all of that. And the landscape has gotten a lot more diverse, but it's deeper than publishing a black author it's are you going to support this author are you going to build their career are you going to put marketing dollars behind it where are they going to be in the bookstore location-wise so all of these things are outside of your control all you can really focus on is the work that's it and that's what i did with the perfect find i tried to make it the best i could do I feel like it was best writing I could do at that time. I'm really proud of it. And the rest of it wasn't up to me, unfortunately. And it was the last time that my ego was involved in any of this. What I take away from that is, like you said, it's like really the only thing you can do is do the work. But I'm wondering if you feel that today, because I feel like self-publishing, more indie publishers you know, smaller publishing houses. I feel like there's more of them, even if they're not necessarily as well-known. Do you feel like there's more agency for individual authors in today's publishing climate than maybe there were even maybe four or five years ago? 
Yes, I actually spoke too soon. I I, I should um, give a caveat. Unless you want to be a self-published author and take all of that into your own hands, which some people, a lot of people feel much more comfortable doing than trying to fuck around with the traditional publishers. Like I said before, I have the utmost respect for people who do that. I don't have the right skill sets to do it myself. And I also have, you know, a disability. I have chronic migraines. I have pain every day. So I'm limited in what I can pull off. So for me, getting rejected by all the traditional publishers is a massive blow because that's really my only way to do this. But that's my limitation. If you can see yourself self-publishing, do that. You have control over everything. It all depends on you, for better or worse. So that is a great option. And there are so many resources now. My first book was published in 2004 and self-publishing was a Kinko's affair. Like it honestly, like, I don't know, staples, like it was, it was tough. Now there's entire programs, there's apps, there's designers for hire, editors for hire, packagers, like it's all there for you. So you don't have to live and die by the whims of big, scary traditional publishing. Yeah. And I was going to ask you this question later, but I think you kind of brought it up now. So let's just get it over with before we jump a little bit more into writing romance. But the idea that you're the perfect fine, like that some of the rejections were coming because they could not believe a Black person could be in the fashion industry. And mind you, we're not talking about 1997, right? This was, when was this? Was this 2015? 2015. So I'm just wondering, you write contemporary women's fiction, romance, contemporary stories where, you know, main characters are New Yorkers, they're women, they're Black women. How do you feel like your work fits into, bear me out, the canon of Black literature? In other words, do you have some sense of how important your work is to balance the, what I call Black trauma fiction, the modern I hope I don't get dinged, but I'm going to just say it. Modern slave narratives, you know, like that that's the real Black literature. I am of the mindset that we need all the Black stories. And I see the lack of being able to visualize a Black fashion editor is more impetus for people to write more stories like you do. How do you contextualize the work you do as an author of color? Growing up, I never saw myself as, a symbol of oppression or any other black person I knew. And I just can't write through that lens at all. It's not for me. It doesn't inspire me, you know, wading through black trauma is a real downer. (laughs) Like to be quite honest, you know, I bought tickets for till with no intention of seeing it. I bought tickets because I wanted to support, but why do I need to go through that? Even the color purple, I did the same thing. For me, it is upsetting to see women be so emotionally and physically abused. To me, that seeing us like that, it isn't uplifting or inspiring. Maybe I read The Color Purple too young. Yes, I was eight years old and it traumatized the living hell out of me. Yes. Yes. 
It was not a musical at the time. It was, you know, Alice was not playing games with us in that book. So this is definitely my own personal journey. But I don't want to put myself through that psychic work. You know, it's hard enough. So that's not the media I want. I seek out and it's not what I write. It's just not for me, but it is for other people. And that's fine too. That's, that's what's great about our diverse landscape. And that's also why we need to have all these different stories so that there's not just one type of story being told. And I think that's just so important for my writers of different ethnic backgrounds, because there's such that feeling of responsibility. But even if it's an internal responsibility and you're wondering, like, do I should I be writing about, you know, my people coming over from this country or should I be talking about my enslaved ancestors? And even if you can get over that, but then you face a publishing industry that's like, why is there not more trauma in this black girl's life? Like, I can't see it. It's hard. But that's why I want to bring up the idea that that this work, this fun, flirty, loving stories are just as necessary, if not more so, because we have to push twice as hard for publishing industry and others to recognize that we deserve these stories as well. Which brings me to my next question, actually. Do you categorize yourself as a romance writer? Do you call yourself writing in any particular genre? How do you feel about that label? Well, I am categorized as a romance author, so I that's you know, I am romance identified. It's funny because my sort of heroes were the glamour fiction writers of the 80s, which is like a genre that no longer exists. So I'm a Judith Krantz, Jackie Collins kind of girl. But that genre kind of was absorbed into different other genres. The 90s chick lit sort of took it in a different direction. So if that genre still existed, that would be what I identify as. But that genre was romance heavy. So it makes sense that I'm romance too. Yeah. Speaking of romance, we know that romance drives the fiction market. I mean, it's the best selling genre. So I think more people should give it more respect. Also, it requires a lot of talent to write a good sex scene, love scene, like that is not easy. And I was wondering if you, Tia, because you write some of the steamiest sex scenes, which are also humorous many times, which I think is a double talent. And remember where my audience is all writers. And I just wondered, do you have any tips? And I mean it, like from a writer's perspective, what do you think is the most important thing if you're sitting down to write a intimate scene between two lovers What do you do to make sure that that is going to ring true, that you're going to get over your own personal hangups and write a really good sex scene? I think unless you're writing erotica, which has a different set of rules, erotica can be porn without plot. But if you're not writing porn without plot, sex scenes have to be propulsive. They have to serve the narrative. They have to push the story forward, just like any other scene. Like you have to think of it like any other scene. So if you're not learning something from the characters, if you're not being surprised by something happening, if it's not taking you to the next plot point, it's not serving the story. And that's what's important. Otherwise, you get those weird sex scenes that seem like they just drop from the sky and they're disjointed. And it's like, those can be the cringy ones because it's like, who even are these people? They're not acting like themselves. And then also for me, humor is such a part of, just life, you know, like 
I see it everywhere in everything, even like, you know, the most fucked up circumstances or when characters are scared, when they're sad, when they're having sex, like something's always going to be funny. And my characters are kind of funny people. So I always like to bring some humor into the moment, some levity, and it feels more real instead of it just being like, you know, 60 minutes of banging. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. And, you know, you bring up humor. And actually, when I was reading Ricky Wilde, and when I've read your other books, I think the last one I read was uh, Seven Days in June. But I just imagine you sitting at your, I was like about to say typewriter because I'm so old to you. I imagine you see it, seeing you in front of your keyboard. Just, My word processor. Just chuckling. Like some of your lines are so funny. I'm thinking about the character of Ali in um, Ricky Wild. I'm like, does she just sit there and crack herself up as she's writing? So like, is writing fun for you? Talk to me a little bit about your, when you sit down to write your books, are you having fun? Writing is not fun. Writing is hell. Editing is fun. Getting it all down on the page really sucks. It's hard. It's lonely. You're insecure. Is this even good? Will this even ever be seen? And you know, your first draft, you're really just telling yourself the story. So it's not elegant. You're not proud yet. You're just almost getting the plot points down and you know, that's it. But going back and tweaking and making it good, making it, you know, spilling in emotion, making the dialogue sound really real. It's like the seasoning. That is so much fun. And I do make myself laugh. Well, you make me laugh. Like, honestly, I have I have guffawed to you. I have guffawed out loud. And it's really the dialogue that's so good. You're so good with dialogue. So, and, you know, all your different characters have their own things. You know, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but the Tuesday character, the former child star, oh my God, hilarious. Like, so funny, so, so good. I love Tuesday. Uh, was she based on anybody in particular? No, but I'm just a huge Hollywood memoir head. So I've read them all. And like my dissertation would be child stars in Hollywood. Like I am obsessed. They are always the darkest, craziest stories. And I just cannot believe such madness happens right before our very eyes, you know? So she's based on like a lot of the child star memoirs and biographies I've read, but also when I was in the middle of writing Ricky Wilde, Jeanette McClurdy came out with her book, I'm Glad My Mom Died, or something like that. She was like a horrible stage mom. Jeanette McClurdy was a Nickelodeon or Disney actor. And I was really inspired by kind of the struggles she went through in her career. One of the things the words for me and we're talking about in our writing community this year is discipline. Like, really, what does it mean to be disciplined in your writing? You know, you can really want to write. You can say you're going to write. But there's a level of discipline that has to happen for you to obviously complete a book, right? And I just wondered how you get through writing. You know, you said it's horrible. It's hell, right? Like that first part. What is your kind of mindset tricks, things you do to make sure that you can stay disciplined to get your projects out? And again, reminding everybody how many books you've actually completed. So this is a lifetime. And this is 
multiple books, multiple years, having a job, having a chronic pain disability, having a child, what is your strategy for staying disciplined to your craft? The only thing that works for me is being really tough, really hard on myself. I was recently talking to another Black female author about what her strategy is for actually completing writing. And she's, it was very, you know, I'm kind to myself, self care, give myself breaks, build in carrots to dangle, like a spa trip or this or that. If I did that, I'd never get it done. For me, it is just being a taskmaster, being tough, being like the most annoying boss you've ever had. And I just make myself do it. And there's nothing to it but to do it. Like you just have to. And the thing is, I hear people say like, oh, I've always really wanted to write. I just, when you find the time and the thing is, there's never enough time, but people find enough time to do what they want to do. There's people that get up at four in the morning and run every day. I could never do that because that isn't something that's valuable to me. Writing is valuable to me. So you have to make it the most important thing. You just have to do it. It's Whenever I'm asked this question, I feel like my answer is so lacking because it's there's no getting around it. You just have to sit down and do it. Yeah, I mean, I like to do episodes where we talk about our literary ancestors and what writing lessons can we take from them. And my first episode was on Phyllis Wheatley, who was enslaved when she wrote her first book. So I'm like, listen, if this woman is taking care of her sickly children, cleaning other people's chamber pots and is is a slave and she can write, you can find a time to write. I mean, there is no ideal time. So, no, I mean, there isn't a like, well, this is how you get disciplined. This is how you get it done. It's truly a mindset thing. And if the mindset is you just have to do it, then you just have to do it. And I just, I ask all of the writers that come on, like, what is it? And it's pretty much always the same answer. Although some people might have a technique, like your friend, you know, they reward themselves for doing it, whatever it might be. But the other thing about having discipline in this writing game is like the idea of staying with it and adjusting to all of the changes in the industry requires a certain level of discipline, meaning like you're still here. And you've been through, I think I heard you on another podcast talking about, you know, when you first published, I think social media wasn't a thing. And now we've lived through the most transformative 10 to 15 years, right? Like going from no social media to now you can't necessarily even get a book deal without your platform. Like how many followers do you have? In addition to actually writing the books, Tia, what do you do to let people know about your work? Like, what is the additional work that is required in your mind in terms of being a writer besides actually doing the writing? Uh, you shouldn't have to do anything besides the writing, but here we are. So for me, just my personal story, I'm 48 years old. I've been in this business for 25 years. so. I have tons of bylines. I was, you know, my primary career was as a beauty editor at magazines. So I was a journalist for a really long time. So there was always examples of other writing that I had. And I think that was really important until last year I was working as a beauty writer. So I think that that really helped me that I had other writing for people to look at. I got to a place where I couldn't do both anymore. 
but I definitely think if you're starting out, it helps to write a lot, you know, and if you're not writing for a publication, write medium, Substack, like, you know, I think it's a really good way to, first of all, practice, but also show the world your gift in different ways. And I noticed you are going on a whirlwind tour mm-hmm. for Ricky Wild. Like you're going to be in a lot of different cities. And that made me very excited because the book tour has kind of, well, because of COVID, yeah. obviously, it, the idea of doing in-person events. So when I saw like your tour schedule, I was like, oh, she's going to all these different places. But I also noticed that some of those are not just like, I'm going to a bookstore, you're going to events, you're going to conferences and mm-hmm. all these different things. How much of that do you take part in figuring out where you want to go? And how much is that a publicist handling that for you? It's really a publicist. Yeah, because I don't have connections at these festivals or, you know, it's the publisher and the publicist that really helps with that, like pitching you, pitching your work to all these different conferences and festivals and and things like that. So that's a huge help having a publisher behind me pitching me to these places. And that's obviously one of those things where it's like, you know, when we were talking before about how sometimes you just want to go self-publishing because you don't have to deal with, you know, the level of all kinds of things that we know about. But on the flip side, you, you know, if you have a publisher who really does believe in you, they can make the difference between your book being seen by two people versus having it seen by two million people. So that's obviously huge. All right. So we're winding down now. And now we have uh, some fun questions. If you didn't think these other questions were already super fun, but. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So my first question is, do you have any writing rituals? Do you like candles? Do you eat Twizzlers? Is there a lucky rabbit's foot by your desk? Is there anything that you do in terms of setting up yourself when you're about to sit down and write? Any rituals that you have to get you in the mood? Um, Reese's Pieces. If I'm at the end of a book, I like Nutter Butters, but I save them till the end because it is a very special treat. I can't have my feet on the floor. My feet aren't on the floor right now. They're up in the chair. Uh, for some reason, like I can, I'm either like curled up on the couch or I'm curled up in my special chair. And yeah, I think, I think that's it. Reese's Pieces are really important. Oh, and the housewife, the real housewives of whatever city is usually on TV as my audio wallpaper. I like to call it. Really? You can have that on while you're writing. Yeah. I need to have it on. The thing is, I can't put on a show that I'm super invested in or an episode of something that I haven't seen before. It has to be something I've seen a thousand times so that I'm not really listening. But I've known these people for 15 years now watching their antics. And so it just feels calming to have them arguing like banshees in the background. Very interesting. Very interesting. I love this. I love hearing how other writers do their work. And I'm just curious about those Reese's Pieces. Do you just have a big bowl and you're just eating them? Or do you like say to yourself, when you write a good sentence or when you finish a page, you can have a Reese's Pieces? Or are they just there for you to munch on as you're writing? They're there for me to munch on, but they stay in the box because like I will eat the whole, if I pour them out into a bowl, I'll eat all of them in five minutes and be extremely nauseous. So 
I have to be careful with myself. Yeah, I I um, have to be careful with candy because I try to do that as a reward, kind of like your friend. I like as a reward, like my dangling carrot. I'm like, get to the end of this page and you can eat those licorice whips. I'm a red licorice whips kind of person. I tell myself because they're fat free. That's how I was like, yeah, you can eat nothing. as many of yeah. those per page, but I just eat all of them. It's I don't know who I think I'm fooling. So, all right. So we have peanut butter candy, it seems, and cookies is kind of a thing for you. All right. And no feet on the floor. Okay. No feet. on the, Is there like a spiritual thing about that? Or is it just like you just don't comfortable? It's just uncomfortable. No, I have to fold up. I have to be folded up. I can't be long. <laughs> I have to be short. <laughs> okay. Okay. Everybody get that. Fold yourselves up. Okay. Like a pretzel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. All right. The second question is, if you had to give an aspiring BIPOC romance writer a piece of advice, if they are, let's say, trying to break into this field, it can be specific writing advice, or it could be like longevity advice. Like, this is how you're going to make a name for yourself and stay in the game. Your choice, what would you say? Specifically for a BIPOC writer. Don't follow trends. Don't try to follow what you think audience is going to want from you because more often than not you're wrong by the time your book comes out it'll be five trends ahead of what you were trying to follow when you started writing and since you really can't predict what the whims of the public are really really write to tickle yourself and if you're struggling with dialogue read it out loud and if it doesn't sound like something someone you know would say rewrite it Well, thank you for those tips. Thank you for the ideas for the Reese's Pieces. And before we let you go, Tia, where can people find out about your schedule for the Ricky Wild tour so they can see if they are you're going to be in their city? And where can people find you just to follow you on the socials? Yeah, so you can go to my Instagram, Tia Williams Writes, and in the link in bio is a link to all the tour cities and registration information, everything you need to know. And I'm Tia W underscore Writes on Twitter and Tia Williams on Facebook. And of course, we'll put all of those links in the show notes. But if you want to just go check them out now while we're signing out, you can do that. I just have to ask you this. I know I just said this was the last question, but... How are you feeling about Twitter? I personally, I know that the writers are still very much on Twitter and the publishing industry is still very much on Twitter. I just was curious how you feel about Twitter and what you use it for as a writer. I'm just lurking now. Mm -hmm. I post sort of like, my book comes out on February 6th kind of promo posts. But other than that, I'm just reposting stuff and lurking. As a writer, really what I use Twitter for is language. So. Some of the best dialogue nuances, you can find them deep, deep, deep in a Twitter thread. Like if you scroll down and look at the comments under a tweet, like people say the funniest, wildest things and they can spark, you know, an idea. So I like to do that. I lurk on Twitter for information. And sometimes people still say like something's going down on Twitter and I just go in there and see what's happening. I I can't, Mm -hmm. I can't get away from it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tia, for coming on the Read, Write, and Create podcast. You are wonderful. And I wish you all the best of luck with Ricky Wilde out into the world. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I loved it. 
All right. Was that a great interview or what? I love Tia so much. I just love her honesty and I love her energy and I just love her appreciation for telling good, juicy, romantic stories with interesting characters who are from BIPOC backgrounds. And I really think that her story with the things that she experienced and that she never gave up her true passion for writing and writing the kinds of stories that she wanted to write can be really inspirational to all of you out there who would also like to write contemporary fiction or even romance with BIPOC characters. Here are some key takeaways from our conversation. One, the publishing industry is fickle and sometimes racist. So keep your ego out of the rejection process and focus only on doing your best work. Two, even if you get a thousand no's, Remember, you only need one yes to get your book out into the world. And you never know if Gabrielle Union might read it and change your life. Number three, the most important thing to remember about writing a good sex scene is that just like any other scene, it has to move the story forward. Number four, sometimes you just have to be a taskmaster in order to get the work done. There is no secret other than forcing yourself to sit down and write. And five, writing is hell, but editing is fun. All right, you guys, don't forget that Tia's book, A Love Song for Ricky Wilde, debuts tomorrow. If you're listening to this in real time, that's February 6, 2024. If you want to know more about Tia or to follow her on social media, check for her links. They're all in the show notes. Don't go, don't go. There's something more. We would not be the best literary podcast on the internet if we didn't provide an opportunity for one of you lucky listeners to win a free copy of Ricky Wilde. And by the way, we are the best literary podcast on the internet, according to the Black Podcasting Awards. Just saying. Anyway, if you want to be entered to win our giveaway, all you have to do is this. Write a review of this award-winning podcast and then leave a comment on the Read, Write, and Create Instagram post that is up there for this episode. If you just leave a comment that says Ricky Wilde and says the name on your review so I know it's from you, you will be entered to win. Sorry, this is only a giveaway that is applicable if you live in the continental United States. I will be selecting a winner at random on Friday, February 9th at 12 p.m. noon Eastern Standard Time. So get to it. I can't wait to see who wins. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really hope it inspires you to keep writing and keep working on getting your words out into the world because honestly, the world needs more BIPOC stories by BIPOC writers like you. And if you're looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, and when I say resources, I mean like an incredible list of writing retreats specifically for BIPOC writers, then be sure to check out the Read, Write, and Create website. That's at read, R-E-E-D, writeandcreate.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for the Read, Write, and Create monthly newsletter, which is the first place where you'll find the latest information about upcoming classes and creative offerings that we have coming up from Read, Write, and Create. 
there will be a how to write a nonfiction book proposal workshop coming up soon. So again, sign up for the newsletter so you'll be the first to hear about that class. And in case you didn't know, at the end of last year, we did officially open the doors to our private membership community specifically for BIPOC women writers, that's both emerging writers and seasoned authors. It's called The Sanctuary. That's what the community is called. So if you're looking for a writing community where you get accountability, writing workshops, and resources to help you get your writing out into the world, have a look at The Sanctuary, and the link is in the show notes. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. I'll be back in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing.